Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Ben Myers, Vice President of Sustainability at Boston Properties. This was a fun one. Ben started out in industry and energy management like I did and has expanded that expertise into enterprise sustainability, carbon accounting and reporting, decarbonizing construction, and much more. This is a great look at one of the most progressive building owners in terms of their commitment to reducing the carbon intensity and user experience of their building stock. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast with Ben Myers. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Hey, James. I'm so happy to be here. I'm Ben Myers. I'm the Vice President of Sustainability at Boston Properties. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for coming. We had Jim on the show what, in the spring. Uh, Jim recommended that I have you on, and uh, I'm so excited to have you here. Can you tell me about your background before Boston Properties, please? Sure. Like like Jim's podcast, I've listened to so many of yours, and I was I was flattered by the number of times my name came up. In that <laughs> so I have a lot to live up to here. Um, but I yeah, I just start from the beginning. I guess I I grew up in Western Massachusetts, and I got the bug early playing in the conservation areas. Uh, really connected with nature, and ended up at UMass Amherst studying civil and environmental engineering, and that got me connected with green building through a senior advisor uh, on my senior development project, we looked at uh, a green building. So this is pretty early, like 2005, uh, looking at the lead rating system and how to create a green office conceptual project at UMass Amherst. I loved it. Uh, everything from waterless urinals to, I think I had palm trees on the roof of my building. Okay. They were shading some solar panels. I wouldn't do that now. I, I, I just loved it. And then Ended up going on to get a master's degree in urban environmental leadership after a few years of construction management and the downturn of 2009, recognizing that I should really follow my passion. And I think the downturn was an opportunity for me to strengthen my, my tool set, sharpen, sharpen my skills and, and go back to school. And from that experience, I joined Harvard University in their green building services group uh, while finishing up my master's degree. And that was where I cut my teeth, uh, doing commissioning work, lead work, energy auditing. Uh, it was a great team. A lot of them are still very close friends of mine. Can't speak highly enough of what Harvard has done and is doing. And the opportunity they gave us to be really hands-on and get a view of how you run a campus-wide sustainability program across schools and units, which is what I'm doing at Boston Properties. We have regions I'll talk more about the company, but we have regions very much like the schools and units at Harvard that operate autonomously. And I, I work in corporate implementing our sustainability program across those regions, across a platform of 52 million feet of commercial uh, class A office primarily and some residential. So that experience being hands-on with people that became friends and mentors that were just really gifted on green building was great. I, I was listening to Hamilton the other night. I have three girls. They love Hamilton. And so there's a line in there. Let's have a drink. Uh, the four of us tomorrow, there'll be more of us. And it, when I was in green building services, it definitely felt like there were four of us raising our glass. 
And today there are many more of us in the green building movement. And I'm, I'm really awesome. happy to be on this journey. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that same way. And yeah, Karen and I were talking about that, you know, two weeks ago in the podcast. Uh, it, it, it feels like there are a lot more of us these days. And that was part of like when start when starting Nexus, I was like, there has to be more people out there like me. <laughs> and I definitely, definitely found them. I've been to UMass Amherst. So I played soccer at St. Louis University, UMass and SLU. Uh, I don't know how big the rivalry is now, but when I was in school, the Atlantic Atlantic 10 conference, there was pretty big rivalry. We didn't like each other very much. So I'll be lucky to keep keep you on here. <laughs> Little known fact, I was a UMass soccer ball boy when I was oh, okay. nine or ten years old. So that was uh that was a formative moment for me and ended up playing rugby at the school, which we didn't get the good dining hall like the soccer team okay <laughs> a great time awesome well yeah tell us a little bit more about boston properties for those that haven't listened to the episode with jim which we'll link to in the show notes sure so boston properties has been around for 50 years uh, as i mentioned we're a class a owner manager developer uh, of commercial real estate we have a, a portfolio of about 190 buildings concentrated in markets like Boston, DC, New York, San Francisco, LA, and recently announced our entry into Seattle. So we are, we are growing uh, and continue to uh, develop uh, life science buildings, office buildings for clients in our markets. So very active development pipeline, a typical year would be about a billion dollars of, of new development in the ground. But we have this huge platform of, of 50 million, 52 million feet in service that uh, I oversee and look at energy emissions, water and waste performance, green building certifications, and try to improve uh, performance with a great team here. Uh, we're vertically integrated. We actively manage our properties. And that means I, I get to spend a lot of time with the people that are uh, in the boiler room. So I, I really am excited about what we've done and what we have left to do and happy to share with you here today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's dive into it. So I think one of the things I wanna ask you about because you just kind of led us there is like from the boiler room to the boardroom might not be the right, the top of things, right? The, the next level might be investors. It sounds like you're going, you're, you're, you're sort of engaging stakeholders at all level, levels around the sustainability and green building process, I guess, for lack of a better word. What's that like? And maybe can you can you also talk about at each layer what they all want, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what does sustainability mean for each of them? It's it's definitely a challenge to to learn about the perspectives and appreciate the perspectives of all, all the different stakeholders. My master's thesis at, at Leslie University in Cambridge was on action research, and it was all about listening to perspective attitudes and opinions measuring them and then seeing how they change through a process. And so I've seen a lot of that stakeholder change over the last several years. We could start with our own teams, right, on operations. We, we had random acts of sustainability. And, and I think since we started, we, we set real intentionality around environmental performance through goal setting. So setting public targets is no small feat. And yeah. you can't do it without buy-in. And so a lot of my time spent with operations is all about buy-in. You know, what can we do? What opportunities are there? How do we quantify the work that we are doing to become more sustainable? And how do we set a path for greater sustainability in the portfolio? 
So that involves identifying energy conservation measures, water conservation measures, and then setting some targets. As I mentioned, we have a energy use reduction target. It's 32% by 2025 below a 2008 base year. So we're 27% reduced below a 2008 base year at this point. So we've cut our energy significantly, 27%. We still have a ways to go. And I think we're going to keep pushing even once we hit that goal, because I think more is possible. You know many of the reasons why. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think that with operations, it's really about getting buy-in, being there, showing up, not taking no for an answer, and just continuing to develop trust and cultivate relationships. It's really about relationships and trust and, and time. And, and then with our, our employees, I think it's a very different stakeholder, right? Uh-huh. It's about wanting to work for an enterprise that is doing good in the world. And so we have more employees joining the company that are interested in our sustainability initiatives. What is BXP doing? What's their commitment look like? Everything from the environmental side through the social side, obviously, you know, recruitment, retention, talent uh, development, et cetera. So I, I spend a lot of time messaging to our employees what we're doing because I want them to understand the, the value we're providing and, and that we're taking a responsible stance towards climate change and, and resilience issues. And then the next group is our communities. Almost everywhere we operate has a decarbonization goal by 2050. So that's not far off. We may think it is, but it, in order to get there, we have to do a lot and, and move quickly. The company has set a, a goal of decarbonizing operations by 2025. That's one of those goals that we set with the, the buy-in of our operating team. But our communities are looking for us to do and are regulating us to do it by 2050. And the regulations don't always align with what we're doing here. And sometimes in certain buildings, we need to do it faster. So we're having to adapt to regulation and the interest of policymakers to decarbonize and electrify, et cetera. I'm sure we should get into some of that. And then uh, investors at the top of the food chain, if you will, of the stakeholder audience. At first, we're kind of, you get the hairy eyeball when you mentioned sustainability. It was the back of presentation decks. The sustainability person really wasn't involved in a lot of those conversations. And there was a usually a sheet in the investor deck with some green leaves on it, talking about what the company was doing for sustainability. <laughs> the marketing fluff you try to avoid here, James. Now it's at the top of the deck, right? And there are institutional investors that are intentionally reaching out to firms that have ESG commitments because they want to be able to allocate their, these investments to ESG-dedicated funds. And those funds have exploded. I think since from 2018 to 2020, they increased 42%. So up to like $17 trillion in the US right now, US domiciled assets under management are being professionally managed that are ESG. That is an insane amount of growth and it continues to grow. So we meet with a lot of them. We want to become uh, part of any investable universe of ETFs that are ESG dedicated or any other decisions they're making around sustainability, we want to let them know what we're doing. And we want feedback from them, you know, what matters. And a lot more investors are willing to share what matters. So meeting with investors a lot, meeting with employees a lot, meeting with community members and policymakers quite a bit, and always with our operations team embedded, trying to advance our performance. Cool. I have three follow-up questions here, and I'm going to just try to remember them as I ask them. The first one is around the, the tenants. I have this slide in my in our foundations course where I, I talk about this basically uh, feedback loop or flywheel, whatever you want to call it, where 
you know, the local city regulations are happening, investors are getting worried about risk, right? And then also the tenants are saying, you know, if I'm a Microsoft and I'm running space in your building and I have my own, you know, decarbonization goals, I need you to help me get there. I'm only going to rent space in the, a building that is, you know, on the path towards decarbonization. Are you guys feeling that as well? And do you do a lot with tenant, uh, sort of tenant engagement? Yes, I, I think certainly the one you just mentioned has been very active and we've had a number of meetings with them uh, and others uh, on sustainability. And so I think that's great. I mean, obviously we want to convert our sustainability activities into stickier relationships with our customers. So as our customers have developed more of their own sustainability strategy and plans, we get more questions from them about what we're doing at their buildings. Uh, even the, the least sophisticated customers are, are now paying attention to sustainability. Microsoft with the carbon negative commitment is I'd say out in front with a few other tenants like Salesforce, uh, for example, who, who is a great tenant of ours in Wellington and I, I at Google. I, I don't like naming tenants because I start, <laughs> at, well, they, they, there are quite a few uh, that are really helping us move forward and, and we want to help them. So all I can say is we want to be a, a class A service provider and operator and sustainability is so interlinked with quality now and quality offering that it becomes uh, part of every leasing discussion. We're, we're going into a pitch right now where we are pitching net zero uh, and not just in a, in a small way, not with offsets and recs, like with real investments, repositioning a building that was developed in 2001. So we're hopeful and we believe that we're going to have more customers that are attracted to buildings that have decarbonized, have electrified, have removed on-site combustion, because that aligns with their ESG goals and, and the stance they're taking as an organization. Yeah, I love that. I love that answer because I, I feel like it's showing that a, a full market is being created here, whereas that's something that we didn't have in the past, right? And someone was just bringing this up on LinkedIn today in the context of IAQ, they're basically saying like, what's what's gonna have to happen for IAQ to be taken seriously? And I, I started to type and then I realized that my, my comment was gonna be like a full essay and I was like, I have to disengage, I have to do other things. But what I was gonna write was like, like at what point is a market gonna be created? You need, the, you know, depending on the type of business it is, you need that business to have a business case and you need their customers to care and you need to have like some competition around it and that, you know, this is the best practice in this industry. And I feel like a lot of the conversations sort of like devolve into like there are these broad questions about smart buildings technology. When will IAQ take off? And it's really like a, a, like a it depends answer related to each different individual industry. And I feel like where we're at with sustainability right now is that market is finally getting created where like all of these boxes are being checked from all these different angles. Is that kind of how you're you're seeing it? Yeah, well, first of all, I think you only write essays, James. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. 
I have a, a working theory of, of what it's going to take to to move the market and create you know broader change. And it's it's like the three thirty three hundred rule that I think JLL coin that's come up on your podcast at least a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not as catchy. It's like five fifteen thirty fifty, and okay. and so if five percent of the market moves for for just purely altruistic reasons, right? We want to do the right thing. We want to. Uh, get ahead of climate change and be a great um, steward. That that's only five percent, uh, and then the next fifteen percent are people that are focused on this sort of customer experience and delighting their customers, right? So it's like a return on investment that's a little bit more squishy. It's it's not easy easily quantified. It's not like an energy payback. And then the next thirty percent is that simple payback, right? Like that's a big market. scale the market. So about half the market is in simple payback, customer experience, satisfaction, payback, and just pure altruism, right? So that's half of it. And I think the other half is mandates. It's code standards, regulations. It's it's bringing up the base of what you can do legally in jurisdictions. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I think mandates are going to need to move quite a bit to get us towards our 2050 targets. On IAQ, I'll say that market is being made. We we are very excited about a proactive IAQ management program that we've put in place. We've been messaging it to all of our customers routinely over the last 16 months for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. That just an explosion of focus on IAQ. I know you got into that with Jim Whalen, who yeah. was on the podcast, and it's it's been a bit of a ride to to get familiar with all the technology, hardware, software all of the manners, all, all the ways you can go about measuring IAQ, what should get measured, right? And, and the bifurcation of the tenant interior spaces and base building and what you should be doing as a base building operator just for raw assurance purposes. Communicate to your, your customers that you're paying attention and you care uh, that their spaces are adequately ventilated. Totally. But yeah, people can go back to that conversation with Jim we also did one. I mean, there's been several conversations around IAQ. Uh, search IAQ and Nexus, and you'll 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 get a bunch of hits. My second question was around tracking all of this from an energy standpoint. So you have all these different cities that you're in, all these different buildings with baselines and projects going on uh, all the time. The different cities have different uh, ordinances or laws, depending on you know whether it's benchmarking or performance laws. How are you tracking like where each building needs to be? You don't have to say like what software we're using or whatever, but in general, it'd be, it'd be cool to know how you're, how, like what the state of the art is in terms of tracking targets and, and baselines. Sure. So we've, we've been a longtime partner of, of US EPA's Energy Star program. We're an Energy Star partner of the year, sustained excellence. And so everything we operate, all of our office buildings, we, we record on a, at least a monthly basis energy, mm-hmm. water, and waste data. So that's our book of record, EPA portfolio manager. And then we have measurable uh, as a partner of ours and, okay. and we put them to do uh, trend analysis and look how buildings are changing over time. And, and, and that helps us with those two tools to understand where there's some exposure. And then a lot of it's done outside on, on spreadsheets and with consultants on a regional basis where mm-hmm. we do modeling of the fine exposure. And fortunately, when we look at our markets were typically avoiding fines and where we see exposure like local law 97 in New York, we're able to mitigate that exposure by accelerating investments like hmm. a central okay. plant. So that's another reason I said the, the mandates are, are helpful. They provide a price of carbon, right? We don't have a carbon tax in the U S 
-huh. and the building energy performance standard in DC, the local law 97 in New York, although imperfect in many, many ways, which I'd be happy to talk about. It, and, and we many others from the industry be happy to talk about, do provide a service of assigning a price for carbon, particularly when they're aligned around carbon. And I think that's where they should be aligned uh, in lieu of energy. Well, let's, do, let's go ahead and dive into that right now. As we're, before we kind of move on uh, and talk more about your guys' portfolio, talk to me about Local Law 97. And I, I think my, just like not knowing the nitty gritty details, because I'm kind of doing broader things now, but... When I think about those programs, I think about how much we need to scale them up uh, and how kind of, although like there are amazing champions, like promoting it and getting it, you know, implemented in each city, like we have a long way to go and they're still only applying in the city uh, for the most part. So like if we think about the 6 million buildings in the U.S., for instance, like we're a long way to go from scaling them up. I have a feeling though what you're thinking about is like how they're actually implemented in the city. What, 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 what are your thoughts? Well, first, I, I think we need a framework that we can apply across more than one city. I think New York wanted to be first. They wanted to send a signal, to, particularly to large property owners in the city, that they wanted action on climate. I, I do think we need a more universal framework that can be applied in the Institute for Market Transformation. Cliff Majersik, who's a, a great leader, is working on a, such a framework. And we've, I've been working with the Real Estate Roundtable, where I serve as, as vice chair in D.C., hmm. on, on reviewing the framework and trying to provide real estate input earlier on. That's the first place New York failed with Local Law 97, is not seeking input from the real estate community and sort of forging ahead. The other, I'd say key issue with local law 97 is the exemptions. A lot of the property area within the city is exempt from needing to comply with local law 97. There's no way we can achieve our climate goals, which we must achieve. Um, the, the results of, of inaction will be catastrophic if we exempt huge sections. And I mean, legitimately like almost half of buildings that should be covered under something like local law 97 for various reasons. And then the third is just the crude metric of, of carbon intensity and caps and the carbon factors that were derived sort of in a not non-public, non-clear way. And, and they're different from what's in the e-grid data that's published by DOE and EPA. So, so understanding how they're arriving at carbon emissions factors and getting more clarity on that, and also being able to normalize for our runtime and density, that there's no normalization. So despite how an office building may be used and density is a good thing, something I learned early on from a sustainability professional was density, density, density. That's all you need to know. Be more <laughs> dense. Uh, so but that's a little oversimplification, but density in office buildings and overutilization of office buildings is a good thing for sustainability, but you get penalized for mm. higher energy intensities underneath these regulations. So there should be some normalization, like EPA has worked into the portfolio manager platform for its Energy Star label, which is normalized for runtime and density. So those are just a few issues. There's a, a litany of issues that I think Rebney and others have presented. In general, I, I don't want to come off as anti-regulation. I think mandates, codes, and standards have helped propel our industry forward. And we're, as I said, like 5% of what we need to do is going to get done with altruism alone. So uh -huh. we do need more regulation and more incentives to achieve our goals. Cool. Yeah. And that 50% of the people that aren't going to do anything, that's good to, yeah, at least make them do something, whether it's implemented well or not. 
Yeah, that 50% is is probably, uh, could be larger than that. Probably might be, might be bigger. There's a couple of Nexus audience members that are probably saying it's, it's a lot higher than that. I know, I know a few. I imagine that you have some success stories to tell us about, right? So I think what I'm wondering is, are there broad, so someone that's trying to set up a sustainability program for a portfolio of buildings like you have, what are some of the keys to success with, with kind of setting that up um, in such a big portfolio? I think the first is being a very good listener, right? Which I'm not doing much of here, but I am, I am, we are listening to, you know, stakeholder opinions and trying to shape and, and influence opinions over time. And it's a soft power uh, role, like in a lot of cases. So that, that advocate advocacy, those advocacy skills, influencing without authority, I've heard it called, that's a critical uh, skill to develop. Also knowing how to call super efficient meetings, right? Hmm. Knowing what you want. You know, I, I report uh, to the CFO on a monthly basis or so, and those meetings are tight. Like we go in with an agenda, we hit exactly what we need to hit, where we need approvals. Some it's just, you know, updates. Same with the CEO and president, just trying to be really efficient and tight with what you're doing and, and, and delivering the message. And I mentioned it earlier, the buy-in is huge. Like let people arrive at their own decisions and, and let them own the solution. Like Jocko Willink, who I'm, I'm reading a book on leadership and tactics right now, talks about SEAL Team 1, where they had this commander who had tons of experience, but was very, had loads of humility and let people solve their own problems. And he contrasts him with a guy who had no experience that was like a dictator. And the guy who had less, had more experience that he had the humility to let people solve problems on their own was a much more successful leader. Hmm. So I, I try to figure that out too, like coax people towards what you want, but let them develop the solution so that they own it in the end. And that okay. I think is, is very important. Cool. And then what does your, your team look like and how does it kind of fit into the organizational chart of the, the broader company? Uh, well, we were talking a little bit earlier, and I know you have a lot going on, probably more than I do, but we have uh, a, an energy manager who joined uh, our nice. team, and, and she just joined uh, yesterday. So that's wow. been very exciting. Uh, I have a sustainability analyst who is a, who's a rock star, and a lot of the metrics that we uh, create and get third-party assured come through her, and she really organizes our data management system. Uh, and so that our team is three and it's grown from me who, who helped write the job description uh, for this role. Like many who are in ESG leading sustainability for real estate organizations, they're the first one in yeah. doing programs. I was a construction manager in the Boston region for two years doing sustainability work as a side job. And uh, I actually just saw a friend of mine, Carolyn, just became the head of sustainability for Pembroke. And I was so happy to see that because she was doing the same thing. We sort of shared notes over the years, like, here's how you do it. You know, you're going to have a role here eventually. Just get in there, advocate for the role to be created. And, and that's the first step. So we've gone from, you know, one person in 2015 to three people today. And I feel really good about where we're at at the moment and ability of our team to continue to lead BXP and the industry towards more sustainable performance. Cool. So two, two follow-up questions there. One is around construction and kind of how that's different than operations, right? Energy management for operations and kind of how you engage the development team on the new buildings you guys build. And then this isn't kind of this, the same question, but 
you, you mentioned managing these certifications. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, you, what standards you guys have and how you hit those standards for, you know, green building certifications? Sure. So I think we'll, we'll start with development and construction. I think the development team has green building standards that are very helpful. Uh, that's something I learned at Harvard is try to set some baseline standards. So we have a lead certification requirement for all new development. Uh, as of today, over half of our portfolio is certified at the gold and platinum levels. And we want to get our total portfolio of lead energy star and fitwell certified buildings to 87 percent by 2025 so we're at 77 certified under one of those three or two of three or three of three and we would like to get that to 87 percent. so having that goal again coming back to like rowing in the same direction setting some intentionality uh that's that's been helpful we also uh have linked that goal to our credit facility so our our revolving credit line as sustainably linked metrics that give us a, a one basis point reduction uh, on our interest okay. rate if we hit these goals. So that's another incentive to increase our green building certification, along with all the incentives we get from uh, groups like GRESB and ESG raters and, and others, investors that want to see more green building certification activity. Hmm. Uh, development and construction, you know, right now I'm, I'm pushing a huge uh, embodied carbon initiative when we set our science-based target at the one and a half degree level, the most ambitious level, we were the first office company in, in North America to do that. We uh, learned about scope three emissions. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we think about energy and steam and gas and electricity and the carbon resulting from those energy sources and very little was spent on supply chain and car and concrete and steel. I mentioned that we're an active developer. We've got several projects going on at the moment. Uh, wasn't focused on that. So uh, that, that was an eye-opener. Uh, so we are now requiring assessment of embodied carbon on, on all of our projects. And I think just like you can't manage what you don't measure, uh, you have to start somewhere. And the assessment with tools like EC3 and Tally and one-click LCA and the availability of these EPD forms is making it possible. Hmm. And I think about it like the early days of LEED, like you couldn't just pick up the phone and call Herman Miller and get a breakdown of how much recycled content was in their chairs. But after like a year or two of LEED, you could, because there was a, a market pressure to do it. And so what I tell our teams is they're like, oh, they don't have EPDs, we can't get them. Ask the question, right? Like we need to help drive market transformation. So. If we're not asking, nobody's asking, and there will be no action. So I, I think that there's some there's been a little bit of fear at, out the gate on embodied carbon, but we're we're starting to get our first assessment results in, and I'm confident that it'll just become standard uh, over the next couple of years on on projects, not just ours, but for many other developers across the country. Yeah, it reminds me of what Sabine said when I when Sabine was on the podcast a couple months ago. It was just around the ability to ask these questions, you know, write your specifications in a way that, you know, communicates your expectations, and then the market will have to will have to respond and shift. Very cool. Yeah, the, the embodied carbon to me feels a little bit like the elephant in the room at this point. <laughs> so yeah, it's great to hear that. You know, it's not great to hear that. Uh, it, it's kind of like the new the new kid on the block, but it's also great to hear that you know measure first. Um, yeah. 
And you asked about certification systems that we use and LEED is, is absolutely our, our standard, but we have been increasingly focused on healthy buildings, right? Moving from a focus on energy, water, waste, how buildings impact the environment to how buildings impact the lives inside. And so we've, we've been looking at well on certain projects with our customers and, and advancing some well certifications and also fit well, which is a great uh, fit, if you will, for our existing buildings. Uh, it's a better core shell solution for Boston properties. So we've We've certified now 13 million square feet of our portfolio under FitWell, and we also certified our entire portfolio under their viral response module, which was a, a great program that helped us operationalize the policies and practices to hmm. interrupt the, the communication of infectious disease. Interesting. So, yeah. Cool. And how do you think about the, obviously, inherent you know, balancing energy and, and ventilation when it comes to indoor air quality? Yeah, you know, I read a white paper on this that didn't make me feel any better about that issue. Uh, okay, they're like, no, you can you can do both. Yeah, I think that if we're going to be honest, increased ventilation has an impact on on energy intensities, and we will likely see you know five to ten percent increase in intensities, all other things being equal. But the fact of the matter is, occupancy at the moment remains below normal. So it's, that gets diluted. That impact of ventilation has been diluted. I do think, though, at the end of the day, we're overventilating anyways in a lot of cases. And one of the reasons I'm excited about IAQ is that we're going to be able to fine-tune ventilation to address air quality parameters. So we're going to have a better sense of real-time CO2, a very granular sense of real-time CO2, and PM2.5. And by looking at, or PM1, right, which is becoming more standard now with the fine particulate sensors. And if we're using those metrics and, and tuning our ventilation based on actual indoor air quality, I think that's got to be the better solution than a prescriptive 30 CFM per person requirement that overventilates and, and is wasteful. So I, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves, but I do think that we need better zoning of buildings. We need the ability to set back um, smaller sections of buildings. We have buildings built in the 1970s for large corporate occupiers that operate as like one ginormous stack. Yeah. And so that's, that's a problem. So that's something we need to, we need to solve. And, and certainly are working with many people that listen to this podcast on that issue. Totally. Yep. Oh, cool. Let's, I want to circle back on the emissions. So you, you mentioned getting into embodied carbon. Can you just talk about how you as an organization think about emissions as a whole and how you kind of categorize them? Yeah, so this is gonna become increasingly important for publicly traded firms, uh, potentially as soon as the end of this year with the SEC rulemaking on climate disclosures. Uh, we're expecting Gensler will, will come out with some rules around uh, scope one and scope two emissions and potentially scope three emissions requirements. So that would mean in your financial disclosure, your 10K form, you're including emissions. That's some radical stuff. You know, yeah. if you told me that five years ago, I would have never believed that would be a reality <laughs> in 2021. But it looks like this is going to happen. We So we bucket our emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three. We follow the greenhouse gas protocol. Uh, scope one emissions are emissions that are produced on site uh, from the question of, of fossil fuels. And if you look at our just energy related emissions, that's about 6% of our total. So it's not a huge 
uh, portion of our total emissions, but it's what we directly control. So it's in that sense, it's 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 important that we address it and and seek to electrify as much as we can. And on new development, as you know, that's always easier to do than retrofitting existing buildings. And so, projects we're looking at in all of our markets uh, are moving towards electrification. Electrification, I should just mention while we're on this subject, because I read the ULI paper also on this. On this, and, and when you look at the case studies, it's really West Coast where a lot of this electrification is taking off. And it's because the climate is, is just much more suitable for electrification. Mm-hmm. In a colder climate zones, it's a very different problem to solve uh, because of the, the amount of equipment required. Uh, we, can, we can dive a little deeper into that if you like. Scope two, that is anything procured offsite. So that's steam, it's electricity. Uh, and that is uh, increasingly where we're focused on greening our power. Steam is going to be a challenge uh, because it's district thermal. And there's a debate going on right now on how important our district thermal systems are to our cities. Uh, and should we get rid of district thermal altogether because it is generated with gas? Uh, it was generated with fuel oil. A lot of it's been shifted now to gas. And now is the third shift going to happen in time to decarbonize our cities at the rate necessary? And the third shift is probably to something like hydrogen, if I were to guess today. Hmm. And it doesn't look like these plants are on track to shift to hydrogen anytime soon because the price for hydrogen is just too high at the moment, but coming down a cost curve. And, and we're, we're following that. It's very exciting to see hydrogen, a potential economically viable hydrogen for, for district thermal. But we do use a lot of steam, like 27% of our footprint is steam, 6% is is gas, and and the rest is electricity. Electricity is, there are a variety of ways we address that through on-site renewable energy and off-site. The the third bucket is the scope three, and that's everything. There's 15 categories in the greenhouse gas protocol, so it's a big category. It's everything from business meals and travel through... uh, embodied carbon for development and downstream leased assets, uh, triple net buildings where we don't have operational control. Uh, on the energy side, it's rather small, but on the uh, embodied carbon side, it's a, it's a big number. So hmm. we, are, we are working on, that's why embodied carbon is really the focus of, of our, our company at the moment as we approach new development. Cool. And how are you thinking about, so kind of zooming in on scope two, how are you thinking about kind of transitioning into uh, like 24-7 zero carbon. Kara and I talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, Google has has published a lot around this. I think Microsoft as well. How are you thinking about that aspect of, of the scope too? I, I think about it by admiring Google. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's how I think about it. I'm like, wow, you guys are already thinking about 24-7. We've we've looked at it. We met with Watt Time. We've looked at our we have hatched data across our whole portfolio. So it's not we have a lot of the infrastructure necessary to do a real time carbon inventory, if you will. Mm-hmm. Our first goal and near term objective in 2025 is decarbonization, just on a, a calendar year basis. Got it. I think once we hit that, we'll be able to pivot towards more focus on 24 seven. But, you know, God bless them. I, I am really impressed by Google and what they're doing. Every time I pick up the journal or Green Biz and I read about Google, it's just phenomenal. And I'm, or listen to your podcast and, and learn about 24-7 or, or um, you know, the energy gang who spent a lot of time talking about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just super impressed with that whole team. And I think we'll, we'll certainly get there, but a few years behind Google. I'm, I'm fine with that as long as we hit our zero by 25 goal. 
yeah, I mean, it's just certainly the, the value of them just saying, here, this is what we're going to do. We'll do it first. It's possible. Like, here's how we're going to do it. That's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. All right, let's talk a little bit about, I want to kind of talk about some of the things that you're doing, like case study type of lessons. And then I'll, I want to go back to kind of the areas you're focusing on next. So maybe we can kind of combine those or segue into them. So talk to me about like the, the, like the evolution of green building for you guys and like how that's showing up on some of these, you know, bigger projects that you, that, you know, read about in, in the case studies like Salesforce tower uh, is one of them that, that, you know, I, I I'm curious about because uh, I, I know Jim talked about it. It's been talked about, you know, quite a bit on the internet. Talk to me about some of the, the, you know, the arc, the history of green buildings here and where you're at today. Yeah. Well, our first experience was back in 2008. It was a, the first speculative green building in New England. We okay. built a, a small building in Waltham, Massachusetts, I think seven stories that that became a signal for our company that you can do this. And we really thought it was gonna, it was gonna matter more to customers. And, and that building, it, it's just held up extraordinarily well. It's still like a very high quality building. And, and I do, that's helped me confirm my belief that green building and quality are really inextricably linked because you look at the quality of the glazing systems, the mechanical systems, but you have to also remember we have the advantage of being a long-term developer. So we're right. not just developing to flip, and at lowest first cost, highest IRR, we're developing to hold over the long term. And so we want the highest quality glazing systems and mechanical systems and finishes. They're going to be durable and, and not need CapEx replacement soon. And those often, uh, and also have lower operating costs, right? Because we, we are responsible for those operating costs over the life of the project. So I think it was sort of a, a token thing. Let's do the sustainability lead thing in 2008. And then it became code requirement in the city of Boston to be lead silver certifiable, I think around 2010. And at the same time, we were building a project that the city was excited about. And we decided to just go all in on sustainability. We've got an amazing EVP in Boston, Brian Coop, who's been the spiritual warrior for sustainability, the company for years and years. And having that top-down champion saying, we're, this is the direction we're going to the moon and, and make this building Boston's first green skyscraper helped us learn how to how to build more efficient VAV systems, more efficient glazing. But still, it was the it was the lead playbook early days. So it was really heavy focus on energy and water. You pick up points for being transit oriented. It's right by a train station, and um, the infamous bike rack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have the, definitely have the bike racks. People hate the bike racks, but yeah, that building needed the bike racks though, so it worked out well. And the showers. So that that building ended up getting lead platinum, and we had, we met with Mayor Menino, and Brian Coop was there, and he Menino and Coop like raised the lead plaque like it was the Stanley Cup. So it's an amazing <laughs> moment where 
the the city and the developer are linking arm in arm in front of the press and and that's what developers i think really crave deep deep down it's that sort of prestige right mm. prestige is a huge driver competition prestige the lizard brain stuff really matters in development and so that was a, a huge moment hmm. uh, for for the company not to mention the finan financial performance, which I don't want to say it's all lizard brain. A lot of it is Performa, and the Performa on that project was phenomenal. And we had a great customer, uh, Wellington, who took over as anchor. And it was a moment where they're like, "Oh, we believe what you believe. Like we believe in sustainability. We want to. We want this building and this to represent our commitment." It was pretty early signal that sustainability was going to matter to customers. And when they talked about their program. What's more potent when you're bringing somebody into your house than saying this this is our commitment to sustainability totally. what we here. so from there we started getting more into lead for existing buildings and looking more at our portfolio what can we be doing at buildings like 100 fed uh 100 federal street here in boston we had the first lead dynamic plaque in the state and and that was an interesting ride with, with our early days of arc and dynamic plaque we had that old like, retro plaque on the on the wall that was a beautiful piece of hardware. I, I wonder where it is now. It's probably in a storage closet. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we, we really went all in um, a few more times, which culminated in a sort of identifying ourselves as a sustainable developer. And we acquired a site that was permitted by Heinz with a, with a great base building set at Salesforce tower, a good, good foundational work on sustainability. And we had the, the magic of a customer like Salesforce that really cared about it. And we had a team that was committed, again, to developing that relationship with a customer, the stickiness by supporting what they wanted to do. So we, we developed a building that was the highest rated lead skyscraper in the, in the city of San Francisco and the highest lead rated project in the state of California. So when you, when you develop the greenest building in San Francisco, you're like in a bubble, in a bubble, in a bubble of sustainability <laughs> and you are the most sustainable. So a few things that really made that project special, and I, I want to give Heinz credit as well as our team who delivered it, certainly underfloor air distribution and a really low flow under air distribution system with, with small fans. So really low horsepower that serves outside air to every floor in the building. So that... That reduces a lot of static pressure, a, a lot of motor capacity necessary. And then another thing I think is just great at that building is the purple pipe system. So we have water reclamation. So all of the rainwater runoff, all of the toilet water gets harvested and be treated on site. And, and that, that system is now going to be commissioned. So I think we're waiting for occupancy to tick back up again. And Salesforce was a huge champion for the, the water recovery. It saves nearly 8 million gallons of water a year, which in a region like San Francisco really matters, right? Where water scarcity has become a, a key defining issue. So maybe that's the story there is that this tower is addressing an issue that is regionally important and water really matters to that region. Now we're working on an office building down the street at 4th and Harrison that'll be 100% electric. We were able to do that at real no cost premium in that market. Like I said, it's a lot easier to do in, in San Francisco. And we're going we're gonna to serve that building with 100% renewables, a large solar array on the roof. And, and that'll be our first like real net zero ground up development. And so that, that I think has been part of the trajectory. I should also mention, you know, resilience, which has been climate resilience, has been a big piece of new development. San Francisco is earthquake resilience. So we went to bedrock 
in Brooklyn Navy Yard, it was about climate resilience and sea level rise because we're right there in the Navy Yard. I developed a building called Dock 72 with the Rudin family. Hmm. And that 600,000 square foot asset is, is susceptible to sea level rise. So you'll see it's up on a podium and all the mechanical equipment has been elevated. Hmm. And so a big focus was on resiliency and the ability to operate through uh, storms, which with Ida, we know are going to be frequent. And, you know, we were the first signal in 2012 with Sandy and now very recently with Ida. And so I think climate resilience just continues to play an enormous role in development and how we plan our sites and how we decide where we're going to develop to totally. make sure our assets aren't vulnerable. Totally. You mentioned champions. Can you talk a little bit more about, you have a three-person team for 50 million square feet. <laughs> can you mention, can you talk about all the people that you kind of lean on to champion these causes outside of that three-person team? Uh, and, and sort of, I mean, we talk about a lot about this in my course is like the, like we have to have pretty much everyone involved be the champion for kind of moving forward. Uh, how's it been for you guys? So, well, we have the three champions. Let's right. say two certainly that know the ropes and one that will know the ropes in a, in a couple months. And then yeah. we have three very uh, effective committees. So we have a board level sustainability committee that provides oversight and provides executive view of what's going on and shares best practices. That's chaired by uh, Diane Hoskins, the co-CEO of, of Gensler, who happens to be a board member of ours and super happy to have her uh, leading that, that group. We have an operational sustainability committee. As I said, I spent a lot of time embedded with operations and that's 35 member committee very active. We're just about to do a regional round of summits. So I'll be in, in San Francisco on Monday and then uh, DC on Thursday and then New York uh, the following week and in Boston tomorrow we have our summit. So these summits are, we go through every asset, we look at performance and, and those are the sustainability committee members typically that are in those meetings, plus some other property management folks and engineers. But having a, a sustainability committee that's recognized by our executive team, I think is really important, right? So I try to get the committee as much recognition as I can for what they're doing and how they're contributing. Cause these are people are, they're giving a discretionary effort, right? They don't have to focus on sustainability. Certainly we try to add sustainability to their professional goals, right? They're for performance evaluation. And that happens uh, quite frequently, but we need people to really care about this and take a personal view that this matters not only to the organization, but also to me. And, and so we, a lot of our similar committee meetings are, are educational and, and we develop content. I should also mention that going virtual, while I think has had you know, some detrimental impacts, it's really helped with training and engagement across mm -hmm. our company. We're using these tools more to meet across regions. And we didn't have much communication between our regions before Teams calls for us became the norm. So we're, we're able to do a lot more training and engagement and we wanna use these tools as an advantage for the company. And we have a third committee, which is our corporate committee. It's more of a steering committee. We are a real estate organization. Uh, we do have restrictions on what we can say publicly. I hope I haven't violated them here, but a lot of that group is about reviewing disclosures, making sure we're, we're not making any uh, inappropriate forward-looking statements, and also just making sure that our, our, we have the controls in place to do the data assurance and that we're putting out high-quality indicators of ESG performance because a lot more of this data is migrating from what was a standalone GRI sustainability report aligned with the, with the GRI index 
to a uh, 10K SEC filing. So different yeah. level of legal liability uh, from one to the next. Both have to be good, right? Both have to be on the mark, but there is a formality in the 10K that, that I think elevates the, uh, the, the scrutiny. Totally. Yeah. So you talked about like the, like the evolution and where you've come from, some key projects. Where are you at looking forward? Like 21, 22, 2022, what are the, some of the areas that you're like, what the next phase of green building, if you will, like where, where are you guys, where is your head at today? Well, all I can say is if you're in sustainability, you, you better be a lifelong learner because it's an infinite learning curve. And yeah. that's what I think keeps me excited about this work. They, our company is has been involved in life sciences. We have a lot of life sciences tenants, but that whole uh, focus for us has grown as the demand for life sciences space has grown in our region. So uh, that's where I'll be focused. Uh, how can we make life science uh, operations more sustainable? What what types of mechanical interventions can we can we do to to make these air change requirements less impactful to our energy and carbon performance? I think electrification of life science is also a fascinating topic. We're looking at sort of a hybridization of heating in these buildings with with uh, air to water heat pumps that complement uh, gas fired systems uh, where we can't eliminate gas fired systems completely. So what's the right balance of heat pump infrastructure to uh, in, in some cases, reduce greenhouse gas emissions 90%, but still allow enough standby capacity to serve these buildings on the coldest days yeah. in towns like Boston, New York. Fascinating problem being solved right now. I think that the focus is going to be on, on decarbonization by 2050, perhaps sooner, of our entire supply chain. So looking at steel and concrete and, and metals and how can we... Uh, make decisions as an organization that that reduce the carbon impact so the back to the embodied carbon thing that's that's going to be a, a large focus for us so those yeah and then health and wellness uh, i should have mentioned earlier we, we partnered as an organization with dr joe allen in the harvard school of public health joe joe allen has published a book called healthy buildings uh, best building health book i know it certainly has a title for it and the right timing uh-huh. uh, so, so we work closely with Joe on strategy, uh, and we're working on a project right now, 171 Dartmouth Street in Boston, Massachusetts, which is above the uh, Back Bay Station. So we're going to be building an 800,000 square foot office tower that we're positioning as Boston's healthiest office building. So that's okay. gonna, looking at everything from air quality to materials to amenities, and, and how do you promote health and wellness and make that the offering uh, to potential customers. And we really want to lead there and lean into the healthy building space. Uh, and I'm excited about that. I, I feel like, especially now, there's a flight to quality in, in the office realm. People are uh, wanting flexibility. They're working from home more. I think there's going to be more uh, competition to, to attract tenants to buildings. And I think health and wellness is going to be at the center of the value proposition. Hmm. Very interesting. So, Maybe if we could do this just real quick. So Jim, Jim on the episode talked about the IAQ committee. So that's another committee, I think, from all the other committees you named. Can you give us an update on that? Like where, where when you talk about this, this Dartmouth project, what are some of the use cases that you're talking about enabling from a ventilation and monitoring and analytics standpoint? Yeah, so we are working on, we have a framework now. Uh, it's an active management framework that has a, a monitoring standard where we're going to have uh, thresholds do not exceed for fine particulate, CO2, 
relative humidity, which is harder to control, but certainly at the upper end, it's easier to control. Uh, and we need to control because it's an active chilled beam building. One of the things yeah. I should mention is we're moving from PAV to active chilled beam on, on all of our projects. Wow. And okay. That's been a big, going DOAS has, has been great. Uh, certainly more efficient, like 40% more efficient in cooling is what we've seen on some projects. And we're able to get these unbelievable energy use intensities in, in Boston. I, another project I should have mentioned, 888 Boylston Street, uh, Boston's most sustainable office building we developed in 2016, has an operating EUI of 39 for the wow. office space. So that's really low. I mean, yes. that's 50% below the, the regional average. And so it is possible. It's not a building that has a modest amount of glass. Like we're always concerned as developers that we have these little peepholes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a glassy building that performs unbelievably well. Um, Very cool. But the uh, the focus at, at 171 Dartmouth Street is going to be on upsizing systems to allow for that 30 CFM per person, right? So making sure we can do that, but also making sure we have the fan power to overcome, you know, MERV 15 filtration. And so we're going to have uh, that. We're also looking at some, some carbon filtration potentially for that project. And uh, we've also, you know, been talking to Inverid to see, you know, is there a potential opportunity there to to do more scrubbing of carbon. I think we need to look at that as well, uh, on, certainly on projects where we can get comfortable with that technology. It's not been a great time to talk about uh, diminishing ventilation, which is yeah. a tough, tough conversation to have with customers. But the, the focus is gonna be really on this proactive management and using air quality performance in lieu of prescriptive standards. So having the capacity if we need it, but trying to really tune that capacity and right size uh, the amount of air being delivered so as not to be wasteful. You know, we don't want to throw our sustainability goals out being wasteful on ventilation. So I think a lot more monitoring, a lot more feedback to tenants. One thing I think we, where we, I think we can improve, frankly, is on tenant engagement and providing right information. It's hard to produce something like I've, I've worked on so many dashboard projects, uh, to, to sustainability <laughs> dashboards. I've spent a career, a small career on, on sustainability dashboards. And it's just hard to create dashboards that get people's attention. It just becomes noise in the background. So that's something I think we still need to solve. Like what bits of information on health and wellness or energy and carbon or water can we be giving our tenants to get them more engaged, right? In achieving sustainable outcomes for the whole building but also just you know make them comfortable with the fact that we are ventilating their space, that we're testing air quality, and that we're paying attention as an as an operator, and we have their health and well being in mind. That that I think is going to be a big project of ours. And when you ask what I'm going to be focused on, that's that's something that's that, that I'm working on uh, thinking about. And a lot of it involves data uh, and getting data into uh, out of the silos and into an operating system, and then into something that's manageable for people to to take in every day and doesn't become noise cool really cool those are that's a lot to focus on that's a lot uh <laughs> you sound like me people are like what are your goals and i'm like list off like 15 things those are all my priorities <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 really interesting work because I, I mean i haven't mentioned uh, things that I'm, I'm thinking about constantly is EV charging is a big one for us. That's been a focus of ours. Uh, that I think we're going to have to see 10X in EV charging over the next yeah. two, three years. I saw a electric Porsche 
in the garage downstairs today and was, I was amazed. I saw the EV plate. I had to look twice. Like, can't believe they, they've done that. But I, and they got the EV Hummer coming now. It's ridiculous. I, I drive a, a RAV4 Prime, much more modest uh, electric solution. But I, I do think that these, uh, th- this focus on technology, the focus on sustainability, they're all complementary, which is one of the reasons why I'm spending so much time with Jim and his team. Uh, we really can't get these things done. EV charging, IAQ management, real-time monitoring of energy and carbon uh, it, without deep, deep integration with our ISIT team. So I, I'm learning more about smart buildings and technology because I have sustainability goals in mind. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what a lot in the Nexus community, you know, you, you start, hopefully you're starting with the end goal that you're trying to enable, but you quickly realize that there's a, an, an IT problem that needs to be solved uh, in order to get there. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's circle back on two things before we conclude here. One is on like, you know, Kara and I were talking two weeks ago about all the retrofits that need to happen. So if you look across your portfolio, you mentioned ECMs, there's probably, you know, a ton of retrofits that in order to hit your goals, you got to find the funding to go do them. How are you thinking about like paying for that? And I guess, even if you do have the capital, how should others be like, what's the state of, of, financing these sorts of, of retrofits today? Yeah, it's, it, I think there's the standard 3.7 year payback that we've enjoyed on you know over 250 measures that we've counted. It's only gonna get us so far. And I think we have a real clear line of sight on like a 5% improvement from where we are today to that 32% reduction below 2008. And I, that I think we're gonna get to just it, with the routine operating and capital investment that we make that's on the order of uh, 11 to 14 cents per square foot per year on energy conservation. But I do think that, and that's across our full portfolio. So it's not at one building where we're doing a major intervention, like 200 Clarendon Street, the Hancock Tower in Boston, we went in and and spent $7 million just on controls and upgrading uh, some equipment in the building. And and that paid back in, in under five years. And so that was a good proof of concept. What I learned from that experience and where I think we need to go, James, is on having very strong retro commissioning requirements. Instead of energy audits where it's required and you just sort of put a report on a shelf and then walk away, working with people who go through and and they do the tuning in real time as they're doing, you know, an assessment of the building and and its mechanical equipment. So we need to do more functional testing, more more retro commissioning. And I think that's going to be what takes us the rest of the way. I also think that we're going to have buildings that are old, right? So we have buildings that are 40, going to become 50 years old, and that's an opportunity to reskin. And some of these life science projects I'm talking about, we're going office lab conversion, we're doing reskins. So that's a great opportunity when you have a large turnover, large conversion or reposition to really get into the envelope and increase the R value uh, to 30 or 40. And that one project I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, where we had this net zero reposition of a building we developed in 2001 is precisely that, like find that opportunity in a building's life cycle to really go in and make the capital investment because it's going to land you the next tenant that wants that sustainable asset and wants something that's totally refreshed. How do we take buildings that are occupied and just chugging along and reskin them? No idea. <laughs> I, that's that's the million dollar question. How much reskinning is going to be required, and what's the cost? I mean, I've heard uh, 
you know, some very large numbers thrown around. Uh, and, and I think we need to, we need to be looking at it and we need to find the right opportunity in the building life cycle to, to make those retrofits. But I do think that the, the thing that the opportunities are still in the controls and they're still in the retro commissioning and making sure the systems that we have in place are working appropriately. And then, and then we'll see where we get, but I, I, I think that it's, uh, it's going to require an enormous amount of capital to reskin. And so I, I am, I'm thinking about this issue, like how we go to triple pane glazing. That's the, that's been, you know, discussion. Do we do dynamic glazing, electrochromic? What's the best investment in the glass? And I think you're going to begin to see because of codes and standards, triple pane becomes the norm. Uh, we have a backstop requirement, which is fascinating. There's a backstop requirement in Massachusetts now. We used to have this workaround where we would do a, a we would add more glass or be allowed to build more glass because we would get the savings through lighting and mechanical equipment. Mm-hmm. Now there's a backstop calculation you need to submit with your permit that doesn't allow you to do that. So you need to hit a certain thermal performance in the facade itself as a standalone huh. component of the building. Cool. So that that I think is cool. That solves a problem where you, that, that tension between leasing and what we can sell and sustainability and what we need to do is kind of resolved by raising up the floor. And so that's where mandates and codes, I think, are really going to matter. And doing it in a way that doesn't make the product less viable to lease, but doing right. it in a way that just raises that floor. You don't want markets to become less competitive because you have to build like buildings with little like ship portals, but you, but you want to, you want to build buildings that are beautiful to be in that allow natural light again, back to health and wellness and also achieve the energy performance goals uh, of the jurisdictions. Cool. And and how do you think about, so say, say you guys had like a, and I'm just making this up, but there is some payback threshold that you're allowed to invest in, right? So you said 3.7 years. A lot of organizations have like a two-year payback threshold. I'm not doing anything unless it's under a two-year payback. What like what options are there out there today to say like, okay, across this whole portfolio, we're going to do everything with a 10-year payback and we're going to finance it. Like what what what's the what is the thinking around that? Because and I know you guys are like close to your goal, right? You're 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 pretty close. You might not need to do stuff like that. But from an economy standpoint, we have to start doing like really deep retrofits. Yeah, so- I, I think what you're going to see is is a lot more creative finance structure. Uh, the capital stack right now is like, hey, let's use our our strong balance sheet to invest in conservation measures. We you know we're well capitalized. I think we're going to see stronger adoption of CEP and which allows you to essentially use debt off your, your property tax assessment and, and take debt and then pass it through over a very long time period, like 30 years. So that's appealing for a lot of developers because off balance sheet. I think that you're going to see more ESCO work in this space. Companies like ESCOs have served municipalities that have no budget for stuff for a long time. They haven't really been involved with REITs very much. So I think you'll see more ESCOs uh, working with REITs to make these larger investments. And and so, the, yeah, I'd say ESCOs and CPACE are going to play a, a larger role in, in financing projects. Okay. I also, I also think we're going to need, there's a there's a federal tax um, uh, credit coming along for energy efficiency with the Biden infrastructure bill that everyone's excited about that may unlock some opportunities. But I, I do think we don't have a solution of that meets the magnitude of the challenge quite yet. So I do think in addition to creative financing like CPACE and, and ESCO financing, 
we're going to like performance contracting is the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to see the, the, uh, the need for real strong federal uh, public funding of, of investments. And I'm not suggesting that those need to flow to a company like Boston Properties, but I'm, I'm suggesting that for affordable multifamily uh, sectors that are, are underfunded and, and don't have capital, yeah. uh, we're going to need certainly some investment from the public side. Totally. All right, I just have one final question, and it's you, you dropped so many different reporting acronyms, <laughs> and I saved this till the end. I didn't want to interrupt your flow or you know the, the sustainability, but I, I'd love for you to just clarify a little bit around ESG and sustainability reporting, like where we've come from, and like what what are the buzzwords, and like just like demystifying that a little bit would be helpful for people. I think. Yeah. Yeah, welcome to my nightmare. <laughs> the uh, so there are a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of acronyms in in your world as well. Yeah, um, that you've shared with us. But there, right now, our reporting includes a, a GRI, uh, a Global Reporting Initiative, indexed ESG report, Environmental Social Governance report that we issue on an annual basis. And then some of the really important frameworks for our company are GRESB, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. We've had a green star for ten years and. We just got, we have the highest five-star rating, the top 4% of the global universe. MSCI, Sustainalytics, also ratings that we pay attention to. I, I think that CDP is an also an important one. Uh, reporting continues to take up more time. Uh, it is, okay, I was going to say. That's the impact. You know, one of the reasons we have the analysts is to, is to do more reporting, but we we try to balance the amount of time we spent reporting with the, the amount of time we spend implementing because implementation requires engagement. Engagement takes time. Also just cultivating knowledge, right? By talking to peers, going to conferences, learning what best practices are. That's also very time consuming. I do think the, and I've been arguing this for a long time, the the amount of ESG raters that it just increases every year and there's got to be consolidation. Yeah. I also I also think that investors are looking for ways to quantify, you know, ESG metrics, like what's material for an organization's performance, and they all have slightly different ways of looking at it. And it'd be great to get more consolidation and more standardization of ESG and metrics. And one of the reasons why I think the forthcoming SEC requirements aren't so bad is because with an SEC requirement, you're going to get more standardization, right? They're going to set more guideposts for here's what you disclose and how you have to disclose it versus people sort of cherry picking and disclosing metrics that they want that are, are garbage. So I think that, you know, Grez has done the industry a service despite the uh, you know amount of time it requires. I think MSCI and Sustainalytics have done the industry a service by providing these frameworks. I would like to see, um, you know, more standardization and less time required to do this. One of the ways we do that is by automating data, right? So one of the things I'm proud of that the company has been able to do is integrate portfolio manager with our bill pay system. So when we pay utility bill, it flows into portfolio manager and and logs uh, the data there so that we have a running record of what we've used in our buildings. And about 80% of our energy and water data flows that way, just an automated from our bill pay platform. And uh, and the rest is collected from tenant submeters and keyed in. So that's, that's helped us save a lot of time. And then also, you know, the, the partnership with Measurable has helped us prepare our data for disclosure and developing relationships over the years with assurance providers to know what we need to do to, to check everything. When you look at the amount of people 
working on financial disclosure at large yeah. publicly traded companies and think about the resources dedicated to ESG, it's it's night and day, right? It's it's armies versus you know small tribes camping in the in the woods. Right. So it's it's uh it's it's going to take a while, I think, for the infra- I think what, for us to be on par with what we do for financial reporting. And, but I think the controls could come along with the SEC requirements, the control requirements that, that would make us have to spend more resources on disclosure. It's certainly concerning uh, to some folks in the real estate industry. What's this going to take to do this? And my answer to that is I think we need more people than the sustainability people handling yeah. these metrics. Like it should become part of an accounting discipline, carbon emissions. It shouldn't be the people trying to advance green building strategy and yeah. decarbonization. It, the, the accounting side should take on the, the, the KPI tracking and logging and, and accounting function. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about when you started naming off all those you know, different framework standard certifications. It's like the people that are working on that, especially your little team, you should be working on the retrofits and the, like the things that the energy manager, the, the engineer and you needs to be working on. It's like, oh man, hopefully you're not getting bogged down and then all this other stuff. Anyway, that's just my, my soapbox, I guess. But yeah, we got, we got to do some retrofits. <laughs> we got to do some retrofits. We got to do some retro commissioning. And yeah. I mean, we have a whole lot of initiatives and, and the goals that we've set are ambitious and, you know, I feel, I feel great here knowing the level of ambition that we've set for this group matches the level of commitment of our executive team. Awesome. I, know I really mean that like Owen Thomas and Doug Lindy have been huge supporters of everything I've done. And I, and, and Amy Gindel, who I work with has also been hugely supportive and Mike LaBelle, I did, you know, the list goes on and on. I feel like I'm on an award podium. I could go on about all the folks who, who really make it possible, but there's just, it's, we're entering like, obviously a, a time where this situation with the AR6 report that just was released by the IPCC signals to us that we need to take bold action. I, I love the term, the decisive decade. I've, I've heard that from a number of people. We are truly in a decisive decade. And that's uh, exciting because we have so many more of our stakeholders on the sustainability journey with us and, and, and including folks in, in, in your network, James, and you've done a tremendous service for all of us. I've connected with a number of people through your podcasts and really want to thank you for what you do in this forum and, and having Boston properties get to share a little bit because I've learned so much from the people you've had on. Yeah. And uh, thank you for that. It's always great to have someone who's listened to so many episodes come on the show because it's like, uh, it's like you've continued the conversation. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Let's do, let's do two truths and a lie. You ready? You ready for it? I am ready. This is the one part of the session. I might need to reference some notes, but here, I'll, here we go. <laughs> I got to read them all with the same level of, uh, poker of comfort, face. right? The poker face. So uh, I, we talked about buildings a lot. So I wanted to talk about another sustainability issue unrelated to the built environment. And that is agriculture and food production. So we talked about scope three supply chain and food production is 26% of global emissions from supply chains, right? So over a quarter. And one of the solutions to uh, decarbonizing meat production is cultured meat, right? So this is lab grown meat. So I have three statements about about, about meat. lab grown meat okay all right you ready yeah here's the first one 
We eat a lot of animal protein. The global animal protein market grows about 1% annually is expected to hit 531 million tons by 2030. That's about 125 pounds per person per year of animal protein. That results in about one ton of carbon per person. That's the first statement. Okay. You're not going to like change one number in these statements. No, I've never done that. Okay. I'm not not being lame. lame. Cultivated meat could be the solution, but there are regulatory and cost challenges. Only a handful of countries that have approved consumption of cultured meat so far include the US, Australia, Germany, and South Korea. So only a handful of countries have, have approved the consumption. Third is the first cultured meat hamburger was grown in a Dutch lab and cost $300,000. This was in 2013. A culinary expert said that it was close to meat, but not that juicy. Since then, the cost of cultured meat products has dropped to around a hundred bucks a pound. Okay. Those are the three. I, I do a lot of, of, of reading about agriculture specifically. Big, huge Michael Pollan fan. I don't know uh, if there's any other ones out there. Mostly vegan. Uh, so I feel like I know more about this topic than most people would. But at the same time, I'm kind of stumped. I'm going to say the second one. And uh, you got me. Got yeah. it. Is, is it because it's not approved anywhere? Is it, what, what, what's the technicality there? Yeah, only one country. Uh, so the, 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 the statement was that a handful of countries have approved consumption, US, Australia, Germany, and South Korea. None of those countries have approved consumption. Yeah, I was going to say, okay. The, the one country that has approved consumption of cultured meat is Singapore. And it was a okay. chicken nugget uh, grown in a lab in 2020. I love that. Well done. I love how you zoomed in on like some other topic out there. Uh, that's awesome. Well, cool, Ben. This has been so much fun having you on the show. Thanks for bringing your passion to such a, a, a big problem. Yeah. Well, thank you for having us. And and I, you know, again, just want to thank you, James, because you've created a, a trove of information for the community to continue learning and continuing to get better. And that's what it's all about. That is. All right. Thanks. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.